You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have an excellent episode lined up for you where I get to interview Eric and Julia Leewald. If their names aren't familiar to you, then you may be familiar with something that they worked on, and that is X Men the Animated Series. Now, I've mentioned before on the podcast how important I think X Men was to animation in general. It was a necessary link in a process that I think was going on in the early 90s, but I think without X-Men proving that you could tell deeper stories, that you could tell interlinked, serialized stories, that you could deal with darker themes in animation, I think that that kind of storytelling in animation would have been limited to, you know, the kind of stuff that they showed on MTV, maybe, or on direct-to-video type releases. And it wouldn't have become more mainstream into network television. It's the reason why we got things like Gargoyles later and some of the other Marvel animation and DC animation. Because even though people always cite Batman the Animated Series, which did come out a little bit before X-Men, Batman didn't have any of those interlinked stories. It didn't have sort of the same depth of storytelling. The animation was very good, was very groundbreaking. But it wasn't until the later DC shows like Superman and Batman Beyond and Justice League that they started really going into story arcs and things of that nature. So I think even the Warner DC animation learned from X-Men the Animated Series. But Eric and Julia recently wrote a book called Previously on the X-Men, which I've read and I recommend that all of you who are listening to this pick it up too. And we'll be talking about the book, we'll be talking about their time working on X-Men, we'll be talking about all of that in just a little bit. As for me, just a little bit of an update, I am continuing to work on getting some of those episodes that I've recorded over the last year or so out there. Ben is continuing to help me get stuff posted. I'm a little worried that I won't be able to do as many cons as I have um, the last year. Uh, Money's getting kind of tight, we had an electrical fire at the house. Nobody was hurt, but, you know, there was some damage, and we had to pay to get some stuff fixed, and that kind of stuff is never good, and that's on top of all the health issues that have been going on, stuff of that nature. But right now, my wife and I, we're looking at getting to The Rise of Skywalker, because we both want to see that, and so there, it's just a matter of working out the timing, where we can both go, we're trying to make it a date night, since the kids aren't really interested in Star Wars, which I know is shocking, I don't know where I went wrong as a parent, but hey, both my kids like X-Men, the animated series, so, you know, I'm doing something right somewhere, but uh, yeah, I wish they were more into Star Wars, but you know, it is what it is, I take my successes where I can get them, but uh, yeah, so anyway, that's that's where things are going with my life right now, that's hopefully, you know, things will continue to uh, to look up. We'll be able to do some cons. 
I'll definitely be doing Chicago TARDIS in 2020, mostly because that's such a close con, and it's a con where I've at least had enough time there and have met the people in charge and stuff, so you know, get to do a lot of panels there and things of that nature, so I'm always, I always have a good time there. Love to do Dragon Con again, but that one's a hard one to get to. It's a lot of money, especially with the whole family coming along, so don't think I'm going to be able to make it there this year, but maybe. I know that's a change. I think earlier this year I might have posted, or I might have said here, or I might have posted online that I was coming to Dragon Con, and I did get, you know, membership tickets bought, but thinking we might have to cancel but you know it's still quite a few months away so maybe not but yeah so with all that being said since we don't really have you know a cast this week we don't have you know any five minute controversies to talk about or whatever we're going to get on to the interview right after we listen to this promo from another fine podcast ladies and gentlemen put your hands together for the comedy stylings of Hugh for the board collection When I was part of the Bork Collective, my Bork wife was so fat, when she sat around the Collective, uh, she sat around the Collective. The Monster Sci-Fi Show is part of the ESO Network. It's sci-fi from a certain point of view. And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, we are going to interview Eric and Julia Lewald, who were instrumental to my life because they were involved in the creation of uh, X-Men, the animated series. So uh, Eric and Julia, thank you for joining the 42 cast. Well, thanks for having us, David. Thank you so much. Oh, not a problem. Like I was telling you before the show started, I absolutely loved X-Men, and I credit it as the thing that got me into superheroes and comics and really kept me interested in animation as a teenager. So I really appreciate that you guys created that show. We appreciate hearing that, and you know, often hear from folks that, that X-Men the Animated Series became their way into the comic world versus you know, uh, people into comics already coming to join the show, which is, you know, hey, being a comic book fan, that would have been fine. But really, a lot of folks discovered the comic books through the animated series. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine now, Nathan, but when, when we got the job in February of 92, uh, we were told, look, 85% of the people that tune into the show won't know the X-Men comics. There were no movies, and the, the comic, the 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 size of the comic book audience or, you know, people that read books was, was a certain modest size compared to, you know, the number that watch television. And so we were going into it being told, you have to assume that who you're writing, the people you're writing for won't know the characters and won't know the world and that this will be their introduction to it. And that's very odd looking back now after all the huge movies and the fact that it seems like everybody on every corner of the planet knows who the X-Men are now. Uh, but that was the way it was when we were writing the show. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it was the same way with me. I mean, with Marvel, I was only really familiar with Spider-Man and the Hulk, and that's because they had both had animated shows, and the Hulk had had that live-action series. And so those were the two characters I knew. And so you talk about Wolverine and Cyclops and all them, I had never heard of them before. You weren't alone. You weren't alone. Yeah, and so... um, then when your season ends, you know, the X-Men that I'm watching, I'm like, well, this, this stinks because now I have to wait, you know, so many months to watch any more episodes. And so I started reading the comics as just a way of bridging the gap, <laughs> you know, between seasons of X-Men. Try explaining to the young people today what it means to not live in a world with uh, VC, uh, VCR or even VCRs back then or TiVo or anything mm-hmm. or DVR recording. Where everything's available all the time. Yeah, it wasn't back then. Oh, I, I believe me, I recorded all the episodes. Oh. <laughs> so I did watch them over and over again, but, you know, for new content, I was going to the comics just as a way of getting more X-Men. But uh, before we uh, dive too deep into X-Men, I did want to ask you just a little bit about yourselves and your background. So, Eric, where were you born? Well, I was, I actually, uh, I was born in Atlanta. I, I don't sound like it because my, uh, my father was European, my mother was Midwestern, and we moved to Minnesota when I was two. But I'm, my birth certificate says downtown Atlanta Baptist Hospital, and I spent a few years in Minnesota. And then when I was 11, uh, my father, who's a professor, did a lot, a lot of hopping around from college to college, and we ended up in East Tennessee, which mm-hmm. is where... I grew up through middle school and high school and college, and where I got to know, I really, in the formative years, got fell in love with movies, uh, television shows, pop culture, and a lot of my taste in these things was formed, and where I met the, a number of the people that ended up working with Julie and me out here uh, in, in animation, met at school. We were the people that at the college that uh, that programmed the movies. So we'd program 180, 190 movies a year. Um, and that was where we really got our education in, in this sort of thing. Movies that, in the old days, before there was uh, streaming services and even video cassettes or DVDs, if you wanted to see uh, a special movie, an old American movie, a classic uh, foreign movie, and you didn't live in Manhattan, it was pretty impossible uh, you know, to find them. And so we booked them for the college and were able to see them and take a date for free. So that was an incentive. <laughs> but so yeah, I was there and then fell in love with movies and there's not a whole lot of movie industry uh, in, in Tennessee. So came out here in my mid twenties and uh, it just happened that Hanna-Barbera was the first door that opened. And I leapt in and called my buddies back home, said there's work out here. And we just started writing stories and it, it hasn't stopped. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I know that you met Michael and Mark Edens there. Was there anyone else that you worked with on X-Men that you met uh, in Tennessee? Yeah, a couple of them. One was a gentleman who's unfortunately since passed named Bruce Reed Schaefer, who we barely knew there in Tennessee, but we met here when we were working at Disney, which is where I met Julia. Uh, he was also an animation writer. And there's a great friend, uh, John Loy. Uh, who has hundreds and hundreds of animation credits, who is also a, a friend of ours, in the, in the, again, within that, that small film committee, the, the group of 20 or 30 people that brought the movies to campus. You know, nine or ten of us came out here and, and made careers out here. I'm trying to think of, as far as the X-Men goes, if there were more East Tennesseans uh, that, <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm leaving out. I, I'd hate to do that. There's a dear friend of ours, 
from Northern Alabama named Carter Crocker, who who uh, we met at Disney and top top writer. He's back in Tennessee now, so there's there's a lot of connection there. But yeah, Mark and Michael, Mark and Michael and I really became fast friends in college and uh, started you know writing scripts together then. And so when, when I broke through out here, uh, I was in my late twenties already, but we had had ten years of almost ten years of uh, writing together off and on, and really knew each other. Uh, you know, our, our had had a shorthand together. And, and and understood each other's tastes. So when you know we when when X Men came about, that you know the first phone calls I made. One of the things that you mention in your book that is uh, a love of Star Trek. And yes. I know you mentioned that you you developed several of your interests that would serve you later uh, in college. And so I just wanted to ask a little bit about Star Trek and uh, and what appealed to you about Star Trek. Well, I mean, I think the the. I mean, obviously, it's 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 a proven classic, especially the original TV series. But I think what appealed to all of us, to Julia, to me, to Mark and Michael, to uh, was that it took heroism seriously, and the fact that it was a little bit larger than life. I mean, I know they they pitched it as uh, a western in space, mm-hmm. but Mark and Michael and I had you know grew up on westerns and war movies and. And, and epic adventure movies, and had took you know took our you know appreciated our heroism, appreciated you know Greek tragedy, you know old myths and things, and Star Trek somehow amidst all the other things it did right or was revolutionary about, I think it it put these people in position of uh, in dramatic positions of decision making, Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And made them play out heroic decision making while in the midst of the action, and intelligently, and in a very in a very human, approachable way that we just ne- never seen before. I mean, there it's, and I think it's it, it's been rarely replicated. It it's, and I, I mean, I hate to hate hate to go back to when I was eleven about about <laughs> the connections like this, but I don't. You know, if I had to give up any of the dozen of the major Star Trek bits, either the movies or the secondary series or whatever, I, if I could just keep one thing, I'd keep the original series. That that's that has the place in my heart, and I think they found they, they came closest to magic with that uh, compared to every other uh, iteration of, of of Star Trek. Yeah, I, I'm I'm particularly fascinated about this because I'm in a point right now where I've just shown my youngest daughter X Men and my oldest daughter, who's already seen X Men, uh, and I just finished watching the original Star Trek. So I'm kind of at a point right now where I'm I'm in you know immersed in both of those things, and so uh, and I of course I grew up with the original Star Trek also in syndication. So I remember a time before Next Generation, kids. There there was a time. Impossible <laughs> to believe. Impossible to believe, but it's true. Right. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, it's interesting though to to draw a connection there with that with Star Trek influencing uh, X Men uh, a little bit. So uh, I wanted your take on that. Well, and the thing that that hurts our heart is it wasn't until years later because we were in Los Angeles the whole time the show was being done X Men, and the voice talent was all up in Toronto, uh, and, but for various financial reasons. But we didn't find out until much later that the voice of Apocalypse, <laughs> the first first voice of apocalypse for the show who to me is still the voice of apocalypse mm-hmm. in my head was actor john colicos and it turns out john colicos also appeared in the original star trek he was the first klingon mm-hmm. 
ever. And so there's this astounding connection to our own yeah. young pop culture obsession. And he was part of the show that we were, you know, he was a, he was this, this wonderful part of the show that we were part of. And we probably sensed it. We sensed, Oh, who's this glorious voice. Yeah. But I wish we'd known. So we could just have said something to the man and said, do you understand that, you know, you were, who were the first Klingon commander ever shown on television. And you were our apocalypse, both. And we didn't get a chance to do that because he passed in 07. Yeah, I did not realize that until... Um, actually, I saw it on your blog before I read it in your book. But yeah, it blew me away, too, when I read that. Because then suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm playing his voice back in my head, you know, both the apocalypse and core. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But yeah, until then, I did not make the connection. So, Julia, what about you, though? Um, where were you born? Uh, interestingly enough, talking to you right now, I was born in Wisconsin. And then family moved down to Texas when I was two. And so grew up there and graduated college and had one of those fateful conversations with a friend in a parking lot. Uh, she was going to go out to California and be a student music teacher at a school somewhere. And she said, you know, I know... I hear they pay people to write in Hollywood and I know you like to write. Do you want to come along? And with that conversation, it's like, you know, it can happen. It can, people, people move, people leave where they are and they go. And so I did came out to Los Angeles, knew no one, knew nothing. And I'd broken my leg earlier that year. I was in a cast up to my hip. So I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> I was like the complete package of off the, falling off the cabbage truck, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> but part of that uh, was spent the first three years, made the choice to go to law school because I figured I needed to learn what I was trying to do. And it gave me an ex it gave me time to sort of figure out what was going on in Hollywood. Again, I knew no one, I knew nothing. But all along, I'm hoping to figure out how to break into writing. And it took a few years, but I, I got the opportunity, uh, thanks to uh, Tad Stones and Bryce Malick at Disney TV Animation. You didn't have to have an agent to go pitch to them for the Disney afternoon. And I went in every week <laughs> <laughs> for six months trying to pitch them a story idea for something. And finally, they, they found something in a nugget that I'd had for Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. Gave me the chance to write to outline, then to script, then to rewrite it. And then they said, well, we've got an open desk. Would you like to join the staff? And it's like, oh, you'll have to blast me out of here with dynamite. This is, <laughs> this is it. And been happy writing TV animation ever since. And that's where I met Eric. His office was next door to mine. He was a writer there. So um, this is something that I was curious about, because when I think about it, going back, you know, cartoons that I watched as a kid, there were always some women writers in just about all the shows that I watched. Was the animation industry, did you feel that it was, um, that there was a good amount of gender equality there? Or do you feel like it was kind of hard to make it as a woman in the 80s uh, writing for television? I'll say as a woman, there was just a general challenge, a challenge in general, because there there are the, the biases and the, the easy, oh, you know, hey, we're going out to do XYZ and it, the the gal doesn't get included you know that, mm. that kind of behavior but but to their credit the folks at disney tv animation they were about as as gender neutral as i as i've seen before or since uh, with other female writers on staff you know and and i give them all the credit for that 
Oh, that's good. Yeah. And uh, Eric, so I know that you met uh, Julia at Disney, but uh, were you working um, in L.A. writing uh, animation before that? Yeah. I came out uh, here... And I'm trying to think. It was it was a it was December 1984 where uh, I was out here and my friend John Loy and one of the friends from Tennessee and we were been writing like crazy spec scripts and taking meetings and trying to figure out how to break in and then a neighbor of mine said well you know they just got a bunch of big syndicated shows which at the time meant 65 episode order as opposed to 13. They got just got a couple syndicated series ordered at Disney. I mean, at Hanna Barbera, they're hiring, and so John and I went and pitched, and uh, you know, each gave him a, a writing sample. He gave him to Gene McCurdy, who's president of Hanna Barbera, and she read him and liked him. I thought, okay, these guys at least can write decently. So that was the door opening to allow us, you know, to pitch shows maybe one day to get an assignment. So John and I pitched half a dozen ideas for Challenge of the Gobots, <laughs> which was the competitor to Transformers at the time. Both of them huge toy lines out of Japan and both similar deal where you had characters that transformed into vehicles. And one of our show one of our ideas went through. We did the script, which is a learning process because animation writing is different than other kinds of writing, much more visual, much, you know, a lot more detail to it the exact opposite of sitcom writing, which is almost all dialogue. And so we're, you know, we, we finished the script and the people are, that hired us, wonderful people, Jeff Siegel and John Loy, I'm just Jeff Siegel and Kelly Ward rather, sorry, I had our Barbera. And we look at them and they said, well, well could you do us another? Cause you know, there's another 40 that need to be done. And we said, well, you know, we're, we lied to you. We're not really a writing team. Can we each have an assignment? And they looked at us and said, well, but we don't know if you're both talented or not. You did okay on this first one, but uh, one of you could be terrible. <laughs> and says, you're a team, you know, it seemed like a team. And I immediately said, okay, here's the deal. If John is the terrible one, I will, you know, give him and give me each an assignment. But if he's the terrible one, I'll rewrite his for free. And he'll do the same for me. So, you know, you have, at least one of us is good. You're going to get two good scripts out of it. So why don't you just go ahead and try? And it worked out that we both ended up working for years for them. I think I did six episodes on the show. John did six, and we both were hired on staff at HB. So it was our way into the business. But it was we almost got turned away after the first script because, you know, there's two of you. We don't know which of you can write. Oh, okay. So, yeah, and that's how you met Jeff Siegel. Oh, yeah. The Exosquad guy, that's exactly how it happened. And he'd already hired John over at Universal to work there on staff. And we just finished a season of X-Men and Jeff called over and said, we've got, we've got this new property that you and the Edens boys would be great for. So anyway, the Edens then immediately came on as well. After I'd done two scripts for Head of Our Bear, I called up Mark and he moved out to my apartment and started writing scripts with me. And so then Mark ended up doing four or five GoBots and Michael. And so by the time the 65 GoBots were over, both of them had professional credits and some money in their pocket. And Mark was able to move out. It took Michael a few more years to move out to California, but that was the doorway in. GoBots was the doorway in for all four of us, actually. Mark, Michael, John Loy, and myself. So did you move to Disney from Hanna-Barbera? There were, there's a couple of stops in between. I did... A bunch of scripts for Jeff, and then before I 
actually hired out on Hanna-Barbera, I was made an offer at this small company called TMS. It's a big Japanese animation company. They make beautiful animation. They did the best of the Disney uh, afternoon animation, but they only had a small development company out here. And I went there for nine months as a, as development staff after I did some scripts for Hanna-Barbera. And so I you was know, coming up with, uh, you know, three new shows every week and trying to pitch them to the networks. And while I was there, two important things happened. One was... I had no credit on it, but I sold the show to CBS called Galaxy High, which uh, John Cristalucci did the uh, animation for. And the guy that I worked for, my boss there at TMS, was Sidney Iwater, who ended up being the guy at Fox who hired me to do Beetlejuice and X-Men. So if I hadn't had that job in 86, uh, in 92... I never would have been up for doing the X-Men job. So that was an incredibly important job. So then, then about a year at Hanna-Barbera, and then Disney was staffing up, and they, in effect, you know, lured me away from Hanna-Barbera to work at Disney. Okay. And so then you met Julia there at Disney? Yeah, I was there for about four or five months, and then she was hired on. And in an odd twist, <laughs> while she was there, I went off for a few months to help a friend. I took a leave of absence to help a friend make a low-budget movie that kind of crashed, but came back, and yes, that's that's where we met in the late 80s, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> so, just out of my own curiosity, because I, I also grew up on the Disney afternoons, what show would you say was your favorite of those? I'm jumping in because it was my very first job, and I was so proud and so happy. But Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, mm. I got to write, what was it, four, she, 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 she actually worked on 14 of them. I don't know what her cre- final credits are, but more than any other writer on the show. Oh, okay. Years, she did 14. And then, you know, enjoyed working on all the other shows. There was, there was Tailspin. There was Goof Troop. There was Darkwing Duck. But I have a soft spot in my heart for the couple of episodes I got to write for, for Winnie the Pooh. That was a very mm-hmm. special show. Yeah, me too. That was my favorite to write for because the characters were so distinct. I talk about it in my book that even though it's a very different feeling show from the X-Men, it, I respected and was excited by it in the same way in that as a writer, these are so beautifully delineated characters that you can't imagine one characters saying the other characters lines or for their voices are so distinct that it makes it very simple if you've got a, a scene you're not wondering well who do i give this line to because you know a poo, a poo line, uh, line is not at all like a tigger line it's not at all like an owl line etc and we tried to build x-men on that model that cyclops is completely different from wolverine who's completely different from xavier who's completely different from beast etc etc so that you would have a really distinct group of people rather than, say, you know, six G.I. Joes, as a counterexample. Yeah, you can't imagine people delivering lines for characters that they weren't scripted for because it would be completely wrong <laughs> with the X-Men characters. As a writer, that's incredibly helpful to have that. That's, yeah. if, you're, if you're at the beginning of a project, that's one of the things you really want to make happen or try to make happen. And it helped it, your characters. It made the writing a pleasure, and it, made, it was one of the things about Pooh that we just found magical. Also, again, this friend of ours, Carter Crocker from Alabama, was the heart and soul of that show for about eight or nine years and led us into it and made us appreciate why it was so good. Well, that's great. 
And so um, you're working at Disney, and then was it just that you got a phone call uh, by from Sydney saying, hey, you should come over to Fox? It <laughs> was so easy. We were all pretty much, everyone who came in on the writing side of that, uh, kind of signed to three-year contracts, yeah. which was, in a way, was like the world's most spectacular post-grad education. It was three years of writing things we loved, you know, learning how to do it in, with folks we loved doing it with. And then the and then it was time for the contracts to wrap up, and my, yours, yours yeah. happened first, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then, then and, we entered the freelance market. Yeah, and it was one of these deals where they had expanded really fast when they were making the, the afternoon and had hired, you know, 50 or 60 writers and 100 artists and there's this massive floors of people creative people that built it was which was great because i hired some of the very best people in town uh, and become lifelong friends and people we've worked with on other shows but then i think they looked around and realized well we've finished most of these shows and things are slowing down we could probably get these people to write for us a lot cheaper freelance and so they basically <laughs> let 95 percent of the of us all go Right. And it wasn't that they were firing us for cause. It's just, well, they realized they could do this cheaper with us freelance. So I was to let go freelance, I guess, 1990 and Julia, 91. And my the first thing I grabbed onto was, was at Fox, not X-Men, but was, was a, a season of Beetlejuice. Sydney was there. Margaret Lesh had just started up. And they bought the rights to Beetlejuice from ABC, and they wanted to make it darker and edgier and distinct from the ABC version. And so Sydney thought of me, and I wrote a script for the, the people that were running the show up until that point. And uh, they liked it a lot enough that Fox hired me on to do the last season of, of Beetlejuice. That was like 91 for about six months. And I stayed on at Nelvana, who was the company that was producing it. Uh, as a development guy for them for another like eight months. And that's when, just when that was finishing up, that's when I got the call from Sydney saying, well, you thought that was, you know, uh, doing Beetlejuice is fun. We've got something special, you know, come in tomorrow and find out. <laughs> so when you came in there, you know, and he's talking to you about the X-Men, what appealed to you about, or was it just that it was, uh, you know, another job that you could take? Funny story about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we jump in that, let me just mention here that I have been able to make a living as a writer. Eric, you've made a living as a writer, and we are so grateful for that. And every day, I appreciate that. And, you know, folks, legitimately, how do you do that? How do you, how do you get into writing? There's no Disney afternoon right now. You know, where, where do you get your chances? And the two things, one is, if you want to be a writer, if you want to break into, like, TV or film, you need to sit down and come up with your own spec material. And that means you need to have material to show when, when the opportunity presents itself. So we could be in a room. We, we often talk to a friend who teaches an animation writing class. And it's like, gang, if you want to break into a show, you're going to have to have something. You're an unknown quantity. You've got to make yourself known to these people. That means you've got to have it on the page. The next thing is, assuming you've got a, a spec script that you're happy with, be nice to people. I swear, it's you know, it, this town is is tough and rough, but we've we've lived long enough now. You know, nine times out of ten, the next job opportunity comes because of people you've worked with, and you know, people reach the stage where they don't have to hire the assholes. You know? <laughs> eventually, eventually. So, like in the case here with Eric. He'd had his years of experience. He'd done his work with Disney. He'd worked with Sydney Iwaner. 
the chance came for Sydney needed someone to come in and work on Beetlejuice. Well, you were a known quantity to him. He already knew how good you, how hard you worked. Yeah. And then proving yourself as a story editor on on Beetlejuice, then that was it a two was it a Sunday night or a Monday night in February? Well, well yes. If you're, you're asking what, what it was like that to get the phone call, Sydney had they were cut for some reason. Marvel was uh, which was a small company at that point. And Fox were keeping this news under wraps. Yep. Uh, Margaret Lash thought this could be like the coolest show she ever did, and it ended up being the coolest show she ever did. <laughs> but she wanted to keep it under wraps until she knew she could make X Men happen. And so she got all the artists, Larry Houston and Will Minio, and, and all the production people lined up and said, Okay, can you commit? Can you commit? Can you commit? And what Sydney had done craftily to me and Mark Edens and Michael Edens was to ask us, are you guys free to run a show for me? And he had said it was going to be Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Hmm. And so we said, yeah, yeah, we're fine. We're just finished up. I was just finished up with working for Novana. We're free. Michael's free. Mark's free. Okay, we're set. And then the, literally the night before the meeting with Haim Saban and all the Marvel people. With Stanley Stanley and Fox, all the Fox executives and everybody, 30 people the next morning, the night before I get the phone call from Sydney and he says, oh, it's not Killer Tomatoes, it's going to be the X-Men. <laughs> and I said, oh, so that's cool. I, mean, I said, that's a Marvel title, right? <laughs> like, it's not one I know. You know, like, like you guys, I, you know, I've read Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and some other stuff, you know, Little Hulk. And, and I didn't really don't know. I couldn't name you more than one or two of the X-Men if I could do that. And he said, that's okay. Just keep your mouth shut during the meeting and we'll be fine. And so that's, that was, you know, again, no internet for me to check up on who these people were. No, it's after hours, so I can't go to the comic book store and got to be there the next morning at 930 or whatever for the meeting where all these people from all these different companies looked at me and say, you're going to be the one to develop the X-Men for us, right? Yeah, Mark uh, Mark told me a little bit about that situation, but I don't think he told me that he found out the night before. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the night before, and we had yep. no no prep time whatsoever and just had to smile and nod a lot and say, yeah, uh, yeah, Mark Mark and I sure will have you the uh, short, short show Bible and the pilot script and, you know, the first 13 episodes, we'll have that for you in a couple of weeks. Don't worry. Give your heads about that. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because you, you describe all of that in the book, but were you nervous about your ability to get all of that done in, in such a short time frame? You know, I think we were much more, we were just more thrilled than we, and we were young and cocky. And, and so we no, we weren't scared about that. We just thought, oh, sure, we can do it. Come on. But, but for the record, it was a ridiculous, yeah, yeah, ridiculously it, short. It was much, time. much, much more difficult than we had imagined. <laughs> but at the time, we just really jazzed that we we're going to do this this A level show for a network. I mean, I you know that that running of the season of Beetlejuice that was the first network show I'd ever supervised and so i just was getting my feel for this and realized if you supervise 26 episodes you get 26 paychecks as opposed to writing one or two mm -hmm. two paychecks so the idea that there was another series that was great and the fact that, that that i knew they wanted mark and michael and julia and I, you know i could now hire all my friends to be part of this it was just there was that level of excitement and we didn't know till we dove in I think 
we were ju- just ignorant enough that we weren't as scared as we should have been. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned around this time, and again, because I've I read the book, but but you know sometimes the timing of everything is is kind of can't remember all of it. You you mentioned sure. that around this time you were also um, having kids, right? So so you're young, starting a young family, also uh, around this time, right? That would be me, sir. <laughs> well, sure. Well, yes, of course. I'm saying okay. you in the plurals. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We, uh, our our firstborn had come in '91. Carter was '91, and and this believe. I say this, we had been very meticulous in planning all this out, even knowing that the Disney contract time was up. It's like, no, we're going to start a family. and these, nah, nah. So our first came in 91 and planning on our second one coming in late October 92. And this is February 92 when you get this call. Yeah, and, just, <laughs> and Julia just found out she was pregnant That's with our right. second child. That's true. So it's, okay, this is going to be this is gonna be interesting. We're going to be working seven days a week nonstop for the rest of the year. And you're going to, you know, our Next child is gestating <laughs> with you throughout it, and uh, and X Men premiered in October, and our second child came in October. Yep, a couple weeks before it showed. But but you still also have a young child, also, so you know sleepless <laughs> nights of of children being up and and writing. <laughs> I found an old uh, sort of not the journal, but you know like a little Hallmark calendar kind of thing. I I just kept notes in. And the overriding note every day was exhaustion. Mm. And I said, oh, my God, <laughs> you're so tired. Oh, can't open my I'm so tired. And I just wanted to, looking back, I just wanted, wanted to give myself a hug 25-odd years ago. and just say, it, gets, it gets better. It yeah. gets better. It really does. But there's also there's an energy to it yes. at, at that age. You know, we're all, the guys are in their early 30s. Julia's in her late 20s. Oh, early 30s. Early honey. 30s. <laughs> we're, we're, and we could, you know, we were excited. We could tell that this could be something special. And the people above us, instead of saying the usual things like dumb it down or, you know, we don't care how, you know, the story's that good or we're not going to put any money into it. Everybody seemed to think that, that this was something special and they were treating it that way. And they're going to, everybody was going to do their very best. So there's this group feeling like, you know, if, if we all do this, you know, we can make it to the Super Bowl. You know, if we all play right, if we all, pitch in and focus and care about this enough, this could be something special. And that really, you know, carries you through the exhaustion. I can see that. You do mention in your book, uh, you have some uh, memories of Stan Lee um, (laughs) in those early, early days when you were, you're just getting started on the series. So could you tell us a little bit about Stan Lee's uh, involvement uh, with X-Men? Sure. Yeah. And and I just want to jump in here and say, for the record, we worked with him then, and we worked with him on projects after X Men. But but yeah. the beginning of X Men quite friendly, you know, was, was uh, you know, over the years. Specific time, <laughs> but yeah, it was. There was a problem. There was, and this is something that I don't know if anybody could have prevented or been in, stood in the way of. But Stan's situation was that you know he had co-created half of pop culture in the early 60s, just this astounding burst of creativity. And he'd been the focus of Marvel Comics, and all these amazing things were developed, and he had about a 10-year run there where it just was crazy amazing and will always be revered for that. And then starting in the 70s, you know, he was, even though his name was everywhere, it continued to be everywhere, and that was one of the bits of his marketing genius. It was always Stan Lee Presents and Stan Lee this, uh, even if he wasn't writing the stories anymore. So in the 70s, 
he was having less and less to do with the actual creation of the comics. And in the 80s, he was trying to get a hand in production out here in Marvel Productions. And those shows, interestingly, you know, you know Margaret Lash, Larry Houston, Lamenio, a bunch of these people that worked with us were working at Marvel Productions in the, in the earlier 80s. And that was not going successfully. So he'd had about 25 years of frustration going from the, you know, the king of the hill at Marvel for 10 years and, you know, which he really enjoyed and which, which, you know, just, just really fueled him. And now here he was when we started the show in February of 92, he hadn't really had a, a hand in the comics for 20 years. And he really didn't know, he didn't really know the new X-Men, but Stan was forever confident and forever bursting with energy and forever ready to, this is part of his creative genius, for, but forever ready to run anything and make it his. And so Marvel pulled me aside and said, well, Stan's here as a courtesy. He's not really part of the company anymore, but there was the, that wasn't necessarily what they told Stan. <laughs> And Stan was very close to Margaret Lash. They'd worked together for years. And so he had, he had her ear. He had everybody's respect. He had, so what happened was we get, you know, making the show and we're just going, Mark and Michael and, and I are, you know, we're going as fast as we can. And Julia's helping out, and, you know, the writers are writing and we've got a dozen stories to work and half the scripts are done. And, and then Stan steps in and says, He's evidently been working on Margaret on the side saying, no, 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 no. He wants to not only narrate the show, but do the introduction like uh, Walt Disney and, in effect, make it his show. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing at all in the development, the other, any of the other rest of us are doing, the artists, the writers, anyone, that is anyway that tone. And he was, again, thinking of his early 60s, X-Men who were, who were, uh, extraordinary teenagers. You know? <laughs> yes. And he, and it was this weird clash of tone and understand because he didn't know or like the current books. He, and he didn't want to bend to that. He just said, no, no, I know the X-Men. I created the X-Men. This is what they should be. And literally everybody else in the project was feeling the other way, but he's so strong and so persistent that he kept after Margaret and kept after Margaret and got her to okay that he gives some notes. Well, this is, this is like two months past when he should have been giving notes on the story. Storyboard is out. He now feels comfortable because it's something visual like a comic book. He said, I couldn't give, I couldn't give notes on those, those scripts, you know, but that's, Oh, see this. well, we've recorded the episode. It's in animation. And he gave me 180 notes saying, yeah, why don't we rethink these stories? Mm. And it was just financially and creatively impossible. But even if it had been possible, he was just taking it in the direction that none of the rest of us were feeling it. I mean, we were in the 90s and he was in the 60s. And they just they just didn't fit. We I referred to as, well, look, I love Pat Boone, but we're not doing a Pat Boone record. We're doing garage rock here. And those two equally respectable genres don't overlap and don't gel. Well, so I just thought foolishly that, well, 
I could just take his notes uh, as anybody else's and use what I wanted, not use what I wanted. Well, that isn't what Stan's idea was. He was basically wanted to take over the show. And we had, a, we had to have an intense meeting with the actual head of the Fox network where we uh, basically had to say, if you want Stan, you can let him run it or you have me run it, but we can't both run it. And Will Minio luckily stepped in and said, look, I'll handle this. He was an old friend of Stan's and said, can you take some notes from Stan? Let Stan know what we couldn't put in. Talk to me. See what we could ease into the story. And after the fourth, and that seemed to make Stan as happy as he would get. But he never really cared for the show. He, he just, it wasn't at all. His tone was much younger, much more fun, much more uh, you know, more super villainy, and he just he never was comfortable with it. Once it was a big hit, we stopped getting you know the the notes from him. But for the seven months that we were working as we're trying to get the show ready, he was the single biggest challenge for us because if Margaret ended up listening to him and say letting him narrate and letting him you know have his creative way, then. Yeah, and we didn't know if if he was good, if he had the power to do that, then the show wouldn't have not have been at all what we'd hoped for, and we I don't think it would have worked at all. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned in the book that his idea was for two guys in a car hunting mutants with a dog. <laughs> that yeah. was yeah. That was at first he he was sitting that that was the other challenge. Stan for all his creativity had his challenge with Chaim Saban, who had a hand in making the production happen. Mm-hmm. and funneling funds to things and budgeting things never met uh, a budget he didn't want to didn't cut <laughs> he was in a the situation and as a businessman many people would do the same thing he was getting a single fee and if we made x-men for three hundred thousand dollars an episode he'd make a certain amount if we made it for a hundred thousand dollars an episode he'd make more so cutting our budget and making our show cheaper was absolutely in his interest so he had pulled he had pulled stan aside and and the two of them were talking and they got really very much that was that was an idea floated saying look here's a simple way we can tell these stories and um, i think that was more Hyam's idea because he thought well if we do it this way we could do it really cheap we don't have to pay for all these characters and these mansions and these airplanes you just have a couple, three of them going around with a with a van and a little mini cerebro and and talk a lot and th- it'll take up the time and it won't cost us anything. So I think that was that was more Hyams. But Stan had signed on to it. You know, I think Stan's attitude was, look, if I don't care how we set this up, as long as I'm running things, it'll be wonderful. And that was <laughs> that was not, you know, that was not a shared idea. It's funny because um, later on, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, when they did uh, the Iron Man and Fantastic Four cartoons, Stan did that narration before right. and after, you know, after the episodes. And it always felt jarring because it had nothing to do with what was going on in the episode. But he would come on screen and he would talk about something. and you know, But, you know, it made him happy. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that would have... Uh, I, I think I think that would have completely changed everything about X Men and the popularity that it later got if they had had two guys in a in a car with a dog. Yeah. <laughs>
So how did you learn about the, I mean, was, I mean, I, I know you come into this meeting, you don't really know much about X-Men. Did you go out and study the characters or, or how did you learn about the, uh, the characters and the, the basic premise? Well, there was a couple things that made it really, that helped. Larry Houston was an X-Men crazed, uh, who's, you know, the head art guy who's in charge of all the storyboard artists. He was in charge of, uh, I, he knew the X-Men backwards and forwards. He had them memorized. Uh, Will Bidio knew them really well. So these two guys are there. Bob Harris, who was the X-Men, who was in charge of all things X-Men at Marvel in 1992. I think they had three book series going. Was was there on the phone or, you know, an email or a, a there were no emails yet, sorry, <laughs> a fax away. So there were various people that really knew the X-Men well. The first thing Larry did is he, he made a Xerox copy of his co- of 1988 Marvel Universe book. Oh, yeah. That had every character with all their powers and relationships, you know, who they hated, who they loved, you know, all the different things about them. It's this massive coffee table book. And I just I just underlined everything. I just I, I learned everything about every one of them. There's also a. A crazed uh, who ended up, gentleman ended up being wrote, write a few of the episodes. A crazed fan who was a friend of Sydney's named Bob Skier, who just he said, "Eric, you want to know about about the characters?" He had written up 20, 30 pages on the main characters that we used, and so the day, you know, the first day I'm working, he sends those twenty or thirty pages over. So I had all these people who really knew the universe backwards and forwards from episode from issue one through 1992 as reference, as support, as somebody that I could call, you know, how would Cyclops feel about this? What would Wolverine do in this situation? So Mark and I, yeah, Mark didn't know these characters either. So he was catching up about them and he was learning from the same source as I was. As we laid the first 13 stories uh, out, we were just thinking about, okay, I'm learning who this Wolverine guy is what should we put him through that would make a good story for us? So a lot of the, a lot of the first 26 episodes we did it from the first two seasons were very much more, you know, what story would we think that would re- reveal store rogues character most? And so I thought the cure, okay, that would, you know, she's got a chance to give up this debilitating power she has that keeps her away from other human beings. So we started from the characters, Mark and I did, and, other writers would come up with stuff that was more from a specific issue, but we, Mark and I never looked to adapt any of the issues because we didn't know any of them. The one in the first 26 stories, the 26 half hours, that was an actual adaptation was Days of Future Past, which we actually had asked Marvel, is there anything you want us to try to adapt? And this was the one thing that they, they sent, or maybe we said, this seemed like a cool story or, you know, one of the Larry or Bob said, Oh, that would be a cool one. And so we asked Marvel and said, yeah, see if you can find a way to update this with, with your new group of characters. And that's how Bishop became involved in that. But even in the early stages, it was, we were referencing it in house as future tense, not days of future past. Cause we didn't know ultimately if we would get the final permission until the very yeah. end on that. Yeah. And so, so there was, in, in essence, you know, it's just like if if Mark and I were told to, okay, sit down, come up with, here are the characters of Sherlock Holmes and Watson, 
and here are the like the four or five of the villains that they've dealt with over their 20 years come up with a couple dozen stories that you think would be great for them as opposed to here's here's a, here here's a hundred issues of this comic book find 20 of them to adapt that's not that's not that's not the way we went to into it and it ended up over the seasons that occasionally a writer would come up with something that was a reasonably close adaptation, like Asteroid M or something mm-hmm. that is strongly based on one of the comics, or obviously when we were able to do the Phoenix sagas, one you know the, the two Phoenix sagas. That was those were things that were very specific to the books, but that was the exception, and it tended to be just who would pitch the coolest story for our character group and whether it was in the books or not was immaterial. Once we decided on the story, we would populate it with characters from the books. We would try not to make up someone new if there was someone in the books we could use. Mm -hmm. But that made it so that the fans thought there was a lot more adaptation going on than than there really was because we constantly would use people. We would use people only from the books if we could. I think it's a testament to everyone who worked on the show that fans remember it so fondly as being it's it's you know the the best adaptation of the x-men ever when truly it wasn't so much about adapting or adopting uh particular stories as it was just being trying to be dead honest about each character and and, and, and true to their histories and yeah trying to make sure that we didn't do things you know prior to the x-men before this wolverine was australian and there was just there's no reason for that well the reason for that because uh, Crocodile Dundee had been a big hit, and an executive who was too changed said, well, no one cares about Canadians, make them Australian. And that's how you get those problems. <laughs> it drive fans crazy. So we, were, we tried to be as true to the spirit of the books as we could without feeling like we were slavishly adapting them. Yeah, and let me tell you, as someone who uh, consumes a lot of media and watches a lot of movies and shows based on other content, it's that character truth that I feel like is the important thing. You don't have to get all the details from a book when you turn it into a movie or a TV show or whatever, but if the characters feel like the right characters, that's what you know. I want to see. You know, I mean, I oh. want to see those characters. So, so uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that that's the, the mindset to have with that. So, um, how, how was the makeup of the team decided? Was that uh, left for you to decide, or did you get direction from Marvel? Was it a mix? It was, it was a mix. They, uh, Fox had ideas, Marvel had ideas. Marvel had people like Cable and Jubilee and Gambit, Gambit that were fairly new, and they were try, they were pushing to say, can you, can you see if, if these guys, you can use these guys, if they can be part of the main team or a guest. And there were three or four that were just so obvious like Professor Xavier and Cyclops and Wolverine. I mean, that's just a given because he was so popular, but there was, there was a variety of, of, of opinion because uh, there'd been a bunch of series of books and there'd been maybe, I don't know, 30 X-Men, you know, there'd been a bunch of different ones. And we really were focused as we were writing on trying to make it as diverse a group as we could, not for political correctness, but again, for writing better stories we didn't want Bishop and Cable and Colossus and uh, Wolverine. You know, we don't want five gruff guys. We wanted this whole spectrum of human experience in, in this group. And so that was part of the decision-making process. Saban didn't care. Graz didn't care. So basically, we were getting 
big things from either fan, uh, fan artists or Fox and Marvel about who to use. And interestingly, it, if, if you read the book, you know this, there were two or three characters. Beast was not going to be a main character. Jean Grey was not going to be a main character. But as we were writing the first 13 episodes, both of those characters just kind of asserted themselves to where we didn't feel we could write the stories as well without them. They were such, A, a pleasure to write, and B, they seemed so integral to the existence of the X-Men that we kept on adding them. Beast was in jail because we thought, well, we'd see him in an episode and then we wouldn't see him for 10 episodes. He just, we stuck, stick him in jail. And then we discovered how much we wanted and needed him. And so the team kind of grew to be the team of eight or nine organically. Part of it was that. And how involved were you in the appearance and the sound of the series? Not so much. The Dan Hennessy was the director of, uh, was a voice director up in Canada. Uh, and Larry Houston and Will Minio were really the the, 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 the the people that were in charge of the of the animation and the look and the design of the way the show would work and had very strong feelings about it, especially Will. Uh, about how it should look and and obviously we were at the mercy of a modest budget in terms of of the animation about how it would move about how versus say a a really expensive show like a disney show or batman which is about double the budget so that was something they had in, in mind from the beginning they knew they couldn't get that level of smooth seamless animation so they made design decisions and pace decisions for the show based on that. Like we were going to be, Will and Larry both worked on Batman because they'd been in pre-production for a year and they'd done storyboards for them and knew that they had a certain certain pace for how many shots per per, per show. And, he, and Will said, we're going to make X-Men 50, 60% more than that so that so that our pace is really cooking so it's like it's like garage rock rather than that we refer to batman as cool jazz <laughs> because batman had had over <coughs> was it 17 months development time ahead of you or yeah, at that, least a year ahead of you development time wise yeah. yeah and and the full support of warner brothers and and created just a spectacular looking show just a spectacular show yeah and, but, and so they also wanted to make it really comic booky looking we have a feel i mean it was one of the reasons that they and we fought for connected stories because mm-hmm. that's what comic books do mm-hmm. and uh so will and larry had very strong opinions about the design it, i was so underwater just trying to get the scripts done that you know if someone had asked me i mean we were given the voice you know, recordings to say, okay, you like this Wolverine better than that Wolverine, that sort of thing. They, they had finalists once they found some really good people, and we weighed in on that. But as far as the look goes, that's all Will and Larry. Also, it was this, everything was not happening under one under one umbrella. Uh, there was no writer's office, there was no uh, art department at any particular magic office space. You know, you were writing off the kitchen table in the dining or the dining room table. The writers were all working on their own projects independently. Yeah. There wasn't a lot, there wasn't time to be in the same space commenting on each yeah. other's stuff. It was just, it was just too hurried. And by chance, everybody ended up really wanting the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we just, we didn't have a, a lot of time for conferences and for, for uh, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've got 
designed that way or or you know the look of the the worlds you know we just would write out what we hoped that they could do and we imagined what they were going to do and then we'd start seeing storyboards and hearing recordings and we were jazzed i mean at the beginning there were real problems early on which got got fixed when things weren't going the right direction but once everybody was pulling the same direction we were just thrilled to find out what the other departments were contributing and just um also the at the beginning of this there was no guarantee beyond 13 episodes Uh, and it was at the beginning it was sort of presumed that this is going to be 13 episodes one and done so give it your best shot folks because this is not going to last so people came at it with a real I'm going to give it everything I can because I love this property, you know, and the artists were going at it that way. You know, the writers, even if we weren't fluent in X-Men, yeah. were just so excited at the opportunity to write the kind of stories that X-Men was allowing us to write. Yeah, we were told constantly, do not write down. You do not write down yeah. to the audience. You write up. This and, is a half hour live action drama. Here's a heck of a, animated. heck of a segue for you. And, yeah, the third, believe it or not, all the writers and all the artists, the entire creative staff was let go after we, like in July, July, August, when we had finished with uh, the first season. Right. Because so everything's all 13 are now uh, overseas. It takes three or four months, you know, to get, to get the back when the script's sent over. And so we're done and all of us get laid off. Because they're not planning on having a second season. If they are, they're not going to pay us to sit around for three or four months not doing anything. And so that is when Will Minio and I and Mark Edens and Michael Edens get the call to come over to Universal and do ExoSquad. So how, you know, you talked about with uh, X-Men that you came into the meeting, we're basically learning everything for the first time. Did you get any advance with ExoSquad, learn a little bit about the series? Yeah, what it was, ExoSquad was an original thing, and it was, we had like a 200-page Bible that was mostly backgrounds and worlds and equipment and exoskeletons and all that. Very little character development, just a basic setup for it. And so Mark and Michael and I leapt in and took this beautifully imagined world and filled in the characters and filled in and came up with what the overarching story was going to be. And one of the great shames was that Mark and had all, and Michael had actually worked it out to 65 episodes and they only, they only produced 52. So you were left with a cliffhanger at the end of 52 because they'd worked out the last 13 to be the resolution of the 65, in effect, 65 part story. I'm still not over it. <laughs> yeah. I, I but so, so, so here's, but here's the, 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 the strange situation in Hollywood. We put our heart and soul into the X-Men for s- seven months. And then all of us creative people are looking around, okay, how do we pay our mortgage now, between <laughs> now and Christmas? And we get the call from Jeff Siegel, come and do, set up ExoSquad for us. So we get in there, and again, it's a rush, where we've got this, again, the, the art, the world is pretty well set up. The stories aren't, the characters aren't. We fill in as quickly as we can. And we lay out the first 13. And I'm supervising, I'm story editing, and Mark and Michael are writing the scripts as fast as they can. And a couple, three other guys came in. And so just when X-Men is, a, is picked up again, like in January after it premieres and it's, it's a big hit, we're just finishing up our work on the scripts and we get the call Oh, can you guys come back? 
<laughs> to X-Men because we want to do another series. I mean, another season. Surprise, surprise. Well, Mar I had told Jeff Siegel that I might have to do that, but Mark and Michael couldn't. So they stayed on and did the next 39 exosquads. Mark, I think, laid out every one of the stories. And, you know, they handed them around to various writers, but I think every outline went through Mark. And, uh, or was written by Mark and then handed off to make the script done. So they laid out, I had nothing to do with episodes 14 through 52. That was all Mark and Michael. But I was there for the first season and got everything set. And as, just as we were finishing, got called back to X, to X-Men. Will Minio was there too. He had to stay as well. He couldn't come back to X-Men. So the loss to X-Men was pretty bad. And we lost Mark and Michael and Will for, you know, about a year and a half. No, I know, because I, I always wondered that, because I was used to seeing the names, Michael Edens and Mark Edward Edens, and then suddenly after the Phoenix Saga, it's like, why don't I see those names anymore? What happened? So it's kind of fun to, you know, now later in life, I've connected the dots and figured out what was going on behind the scenes. So there was never a point when you had to make a decision, because you had already told Jeff that if X-Men came back, you were going yeah. back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Mark and Michael had said, and, and the, he knew Mark and Michael as well as he knew me. And so he said, that's fine as long as you don't take Mark and Michael back with you. I said, okay, deal, done. So is there anything from ExoSquad that you remember that you created or was part of uh, what you contributed to the series that you're really proud of? Well, Alec DeLeon is named after our second child. <laughs> <laughs> named after Alec. Uh -huh. And we, I think I had a hand in the story I was basically trying to hold it together to make sure it all made sense and letting Mark and Michael do it off a lot of the details. I think the one with the female X squad member going back to her Venus family and having, that wasn't Maggie. Yeah. Maggie. Uh, you know, and, and having uh, Nara, that, that was Nara. Yeah. And had setting up her, her diary. And there was, there was some real, I felt some real heart there. And I, it's, it's been a while. I think having it, the uh, big climax on Mars and Olympus Mons and the, the whole thing with the, it looks like the, 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 the super villain is, is gone, but it, I liked the way it resolved the first 13. Mm -hmm. It was just in the, in Mark and Michael's minds as they planned the next 39, it was, that was just like the, 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 the takeoff point. It's like, okay, this, now you understand the squad world. The next 52 episodes will take you off into the solar system and this thing will get resolved. We were all talking about it being very much like feeling like World War II and where there's a sudden, uh, you know, attack and every and everybody's falling back and the allies look like they're done. And gradually, uh, you know, world, in, in the case of Exo Squad, planet by planet or part of planet by planet, you, you know, you get, you get re-control of things. There's that part of it. I think we all had a great respect for Blade Runner and the idea of uh, the Neo Sapiens being kind of like, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, the replicants, replicants, and yeah. in, in Blade Runner that that there, we wanted great sympathy for them because they were created for this purpose and not of their own choosing. And so we wanted some, you know, sympathy for the devil. We wanted some sympathy for the antagonists. And we think that integrated pretty well. I think it would make a great movie. You know, oh, yeah. But that's, you know, that's up to Universal. 
Yeah, my understanding, because uh, I, I, uh, I'm friends with Jeff on Facebook, is that Universal is really not willing to do anything with the Exo Squad. Yeah. That's awful, because yeah, I think the idea is great, and I think there could be a lot of resonance nowadays to some things that are happening, but we'll see. Because this is also the age of nostalgia, and everything's coming back, so. <laughs> Getting back to X-Men. Sure. So you made a conscious decision to set it in a world that's a little bit, I mean, besides the fact that there are mutants, like we have a female president and everything like that. Uh, was there ever a, um, was there ever a point where you consider, cause Marvel is kind of famous for always setting things in real local, like it's New York city. Whoever's the president in real life is the president in Marvel. Um, was there ever, um, um, a decision or a point where you considered that, or were you always going to set it in a little bit of a more fictional world? More fictional. I think it was always like sort of, 10 to 15 minutes in the future not completely in the future but mm. but one of the one of our uh, marching orders was we need to not use realistic we couldn't use realistic weaponry mm. couldn't use guns couldn't and so everything once you start entering the world of you know phasers or lasers or you know plasma cannons yeah, this it becomes a little more fantastic yeah the the, the restrictions on it being a kid show for saturday morning they were as loose humanly could make them for us giving credit to fox but the, yeah, there are things that if we kept the they they did they wouldn't allow us to be realistic. Which it was harder on Batman because it's hard to do Batman without really with real without real guns mm -hmm. and without blood. And we were and what for some reason what I don't know if it's child psychologists or the, the network rules having something that's slightly fantastical or slightly unreal makes them more comfortable with action violence and and jeopardy uh than having an actual replicable replicable behavior gun you know one that oh that looks like just like the gun in daddy's drawer uh you know i'll go take pick it up and shoot my little sister and then they blame you know they have these you know the the reasons for you know restricting certain behavior in in uh children's programming i mean it was all broadcast programming to a small extent i have hardcore pornography on cbs but much heavier restrictions on children's uh, programming. And luckily, the X-Men are so emotionally intense that we're able to have some serious drama without lots of bloodshed. And I mean, much more bloodshed in Exosquad. It starts out with uh, <laughs> bad guys coming, <laughs> coming down, liquidating Congress. Uh, you're the UN or whatever it was. That they That's right. So, but yeah, there was very... The fact that I think the fact that the, the our X Men TV show was less violent, less gritty, and less realistic than the comic books were in the nineties, less ferocious, uh, and that was part of the fact that we were making the show for quote unquote for kids. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about um, censorship in in media like that? Because you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, uh, I grew up, you know, with Grimm's fairy tales and things like that, which, you know, tend to be a lot darker than, you know, nowadays that would be considered like horrific, right? You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't tell a little kid a story like that. There's all sorts of bad things in it. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard both sides of this argument. So you talked about what the network standards were, but what, how do you personally feel uh, about that? Well, you know, we, we both, you know, and you, you mentioned uh, Grimm's fairy tales, which are just horrifying but you know uh, for for every generation there there is I, i'm going to say you know, the, the need to figure out that the stove is hot you know mm -hmm. and oftentimes that means touching it and it's like, uh, 
every generation needs to learn, I guess is what I'm saying. And the, the challenge with writing something that's for broadcast television is that, that the people into whose homes you're going don't necessarily know what to expect from you. If you're, if you're a book, you know, the parents can flip through it and decide if they want their kid to read it versus trying to find a home where there's not a television or, or a TV screen of some kind. So I appreciate mythology. I appreciate, you know, Greek mythology, your own mythology, or, you know, the fairy tales, all those things to me are tools that have been helpful in teaching uh, the next generation, you know, some of the scary stuff that's out there in the world. But taking the role of being that storyteller, it, it's, it, it, it's important to under, to appreciate what, what medium you're in. And on broadcast, there are certain rules. And to give her credit, Avery Coburn, the woman who was the head of Fox Kids Broadcast Standards and Practices, was uh, she could have she killed X-Men from day one. And she didn't. And instead, she was a champion for the show. And she deserves all the credit she probably doesn't yeah. get for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand both sides. I mean, we, have, we have children, and we tend to be protective of them. But at the same time, I did grow up, you know, reading the, the unvarnished, you know, full of violence, you know, violence and, and depravity, you know, Greek myths and Norse myths. And with my parents' approval, Cartoon. You know, I, I I absolutely do not see the downside of Elmer of of Elmer Fudd shooting himself in the face with a shotgun. <laughs> right. you know, there, there there are there are all sorts of ways of, of presenting either humor or violence or true or or life learning stories that have I I, I do think things have, have become too tame and it's odd because the internet of course you can see anything right you know, any any four-year-old that can get to the internet now there's no you know all bets are off well and real violence too not staged violence you can yeah, watch but, videos of, of horrific things that oh, happened in real life so this illusion that being careful with broadcast television or even cable television or you know I mean, that's it's kind of it's kind of an illusion but at the same time you know, I get this this thing that it's 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 something it's intrusive. It's broadcast into your house, and so you might have some more restrictions. And it's like when we talk with people that that want to write a certain thing, but it doesn't fit for our TV show. So there's nothing to keep you from writing this or drawing this, however horrific or intense it is, on your own and self-publishing or mm -hmm. putting on the web. Yep. If you want. If we're doing a project for a network, for sponsors, for bosses, and they're paying us good money to do it, we have to respect their limitations. And some, I mean, you look back through literature, you know, eight, you know, 17, 18, 1900s, I mean, there's all sorts of self imposed restrictions on language. I mean, that's not the way sailors talked. You know, mm -hmm. there's, you, you pick up, you pick up stuff and it's gloriously written, but they had, you know, they had certain restrictions that I guess the publishing world felt was important at the time, which no longer exists. Yet those books are still wonderful. So artists, I mean, uh, or, or, you know, class, the golden age of Hollywood, the thirties and the forties after the code kicked in, some of the, some of the stuff they disallowed was really silly, but you could still make wonderful movies within it. Mm -hmm. It's just a case of understanding your limitations. And if you needed 
to go past those. You just go somewhere else, but you know, not the place that has them. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I felt that X-Men was, uh, you know, had that issue very rarely. The one that always comes to mind for me, and the episode itself is great, it's the Nightcrawler episode, (laughs) when you have the group of 19th century looking peasants storming the church, but then one pulls out a laser gun and starts shooting it. With their pitchforks and their their torches. They got pitchforks, torches, and laser guns. (laughs) Right? It's so incongruous that it makes that funny rather than the serious scene that it's supposed to be. Yeah, and that's, that. believe me, that was, that was, that was painful. But the fact that episode, it got made, and it is a serious, Mm. respectful discussion about religion, I still can't believe it got made. And I know it couldn't have gotten made today. Because people wouldn't be sitting still for that kind of conversation, so I'm very, yeah. I'm very proud of that one, just as far as the show went. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that you had, that's that's one thing you just had to accept and suspend disbelief on. But she's right about of of all the things the network was touchy about. Uh, I mean, violence is way up there, and obviously sexuality is way up there. But above them all was questions of religion and the Ooh. fact that we were allowed to do an entire faith-focused episode was astounding. Mm -hmm. No, I I agree, and I was surprised at the time because uh, that was one of the things you didn't see on television, and that is actually a good segue into my next question because X-Men was different in a way that, I mean, you were part of a movement. You talked about Batman. There was um, a show, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, Pirates of Dark Water that came slightly sure. before. Yeah. That's- you know, where, where shows seemed to be going a little bit more serious, they started getting a little more serialized. Yes. Serialization, you're right. That was, yeah, X-Men was big on that. And, and you had characters now who traditionally, your hero characters always get along, right? Yeah. Your villains must be totally irredeemably evil. You know, they don't, you don't have a noble here, you know, Magneto. I mean, who is this guy that he's noble, <laughs> you know, he, yeah. in some ways he's, he's, he's a, he's a hero and, and, but he's also a villain because of his ideology, you know? And, and so you had all these things that you were doing with X-Men that maybe some shows before it had done one or two of these things, but none of them had done all of them. And so was that... I think you might have touched on it a little bit when you're talking about just everybody trying to just make the best show, but was that something that was a conscious decision or did it just all just kind of come together where you're all doing your own thing and you realize, wait, we, we're doing something that's, that's different than what came before it? I, I, I think it was more unconscious. I think it was more, okay, we're, we're, we're given two or three great gifts here. One is the, just the setup of having mutants being a subclass of being an oppressed minority as just a, a given that you can work with and, and then there was the then fox telling us write adult shows and then us looking at it realistically and saying these aren't a bunch of 11 year olds play acting these are a bunch of like 30 year old adults who have passions and ferocious uh, loyalties and fits of vengeance and we just were trying to do realistic stories that we bought into that fit what we were given. And, and um, um, this happens all the times in kids programming. If you're given something like this, usually you're told to make it, to make it juvenile 
or to sand off all the hard edges or make it palatable somehow. And you ask, well, why do you give us the stuff in the first place if you want us to dumb it down or make it so much younger? Don't give us this material. In this case, they gave us this adult material and told us, do what you realistically would want to do yourselves if you're telling these stories. So we were given the opportunity and I just think it came natural for people that liked, say, serious westerns or dramatic movies. Or, you know. I'm going to jump in here too, though, and say that um, Eric, you and Mark made the decision in those in those first episodes for that first and presumably only 13 run that rather than each episode is X Men versus right. a big villain of the week, a big magical you know mutant villain of the week, you made the the big bads be the Sentinels run by the human government and, and the people, the friends of humanity who were terrified, you know, and bigoted and, and it, you know, just couldn't stand the mutants. And yet Professor Xavier, from his angle, we're, we're going to try and make, and then with Magneto coming in saying, no, this, this is why we have to fight the humans. I thought that made for a much more compelling story. And people say, oh my gosh, it, you're, you're telling the story of race relations or the story of whatever kind of conflict is going on. It was it. It did serve itself that way. It did yeah. lend itself to that. Yeah, there, that was that was a conscious decision because we immediately saw when we looked back through the books that there were two kinds of major themes going on, and one of them made for much more interesting stories to us, and one of them made for less interesting. Less interesting was again the villain of the week. Oh, some super powerful thing has to be stopped. It's kind of like it's almost like a you know WWE. It's like it's like. <laughs> Can the X-Men stop the Hulk? Well, maybe they can, maybe they can. Boom, 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 end of story. That also took away from the idea of we're curious about what it means to be a mutant. Because if you're just good mutants against bad mutants, then it you lose the focus on mutancy. It just becomes who's stronger that day or who's more clever that day or who's luckier that day. Whereas if you're focusing on mutants trying to make a life for themselves in a human world, then the stories become just because that was what we were interested in. The, the fighting was a given. It's like shootouts, like gunplay in a Western. You don't start a Western thinking, what's the gunplay going to be like? You started out thinking, you know, what's the personal, what's the personal drama or the tragedy for the lead character. And so when we started with that, the X-Men stories that focused on, their struggle to fit in in the human world just fascinated us more than the than the fighting did the, the fighting of other with other mutants and it also allowed for the genius use of wolverine slicing up a bunch of tin cans because right. it allowed you to beat up these big bad things which were the sentinels because they were not you know, humans, they were not, they didn't bleed. You know, that, they that were, was a given from episode one. We, we, in fact, it's in the book, we got this big memo from Marvel saying, why are you focusing on the Sentinels? They're not a, as, as big a villain in Marvel history as Magneto is. And we immediately wrote it back, because you don't understand, it's kids animation. Wolverine can't even scratch anybody else. He can rip Sentinels into little pieces, but he cannot cut anybody he can't you know his for being is neutered if we don't have something mechanical for him to be fighting against so sentinels were a given just you know for the 
you know, at the beginning. And as Julie said, they were a perfect incarnation of human intolerance towards mutants. Humans created these things to suppress mutants. And so having our mutants fight against them was like having our mutants fighting against prejudice. It was a just a simple, basic, any four-year-old can get it uh, incarnation of the problem. Mm-hmm. And the decision to tell serialized stories, how did that come about? Will Minio really pushed it. Mark and I loved the idea. We, we loved miniseries back, you know, like I, Claudius, and some of the big ones that were back in the 70s and 80s. Our favorite kind of storytelling because it lets you play out over 10 or 12 episodes. Like It's like 10 episode, 10 hour prime television now. It's just it's, It seemed much more freeing mm-hmm. from the writer's point of view to connect the stories and have things build. And the production people were against it. You know, you don't know the animation's going to come back. It's not going to be right. If episode three isn't right, you can't show up in six. So there was a great hesitation. It cost us some delays. And after the first season, they said, you can't do this as much as you've been doing. It's just too risky and expensive. And nine out of 10 shows didn't, didn't let, I mean, they almost never let us do that before and after it's, it was a rare thing to let us try that. And I think it, it really helped grab the audience for good to have that first season be connected like that. Yeah. Do you feel like the show lost something when you had to do more standalone stories? A little bit. And although we made up for it by doing four and five parters, which yes. is, mm-hmm. you know, it scratched the same itch. I think uh, I love the fact that Exo Squad was able to continue and that that was, a, you know, a different uh, experiment. We were just so jazzed at the, at, by that time, excited that it had become such a huge hit and it, it had worked and everything we'd argued for and fought for panned out for a change. That when we, if we have to make a, you know, make a small adjustment, like oh well, season three can't be connected anymore. Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll work around it. It's still so exciting to be able to keep doing the shows that it was a small sacrifice to you know to make. Yeah, I, I as a kid, I can tell you though that that first season just amazed me because of the fact that it was one story. You know, it's six and a half hours long or whatever, you know, I mean, with commercials, it's a little less than that. But, you know, it's 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 13 half hours. It's all just one story. And I felt like the way that you were able to build off of everything because of that, you know, made it bigger and more exciting, you know, than, than standalones. And that's why, you know, like, you know, we mentioned Batman, which is the other big show of the time. I always felt like Batman was never as good as X-Men because Batman was pretty much standalone. They did some two-parters. Yeah but they never did serialized storytelling in Batman. And I always felt like story-wise X-Men was always better because it told bigger stories than Batman did. And it allowed more growth and development because of that. How do you feel about the decision to revive Morph? Because I know that that's something that came from the network and wasn't, it wasn't something you were planning on doing. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Oh no, just, I remember that when in developing season one, which again, just, the first, the, the first, perhaps only thirteen episodes, and you, you and Mark were keen on, you know, we got to make the stakes real. Yes, these folks are superheroes and they got different kinds of powers, but what, what, what is, what are the consequences? And you sit, we, we need to kill a character, and say, oh, on a kid show on Saturday morning. Well, <laughs> good luck with that one, honey. But I need to got it. 
I immediately understood what you know what that would mean to the audience that yeah. the stakes are real and you play for keeps in this world. But so yeah, what, since you know from the book that after the first season played, they 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 asked kids who their favorite character a was. Focus group, watch out, focus, group. focus groups. Yeah, <laughs> they're beware, dangerous. Beware. And they loved more because we made him so lovable, so likable, and we killed him. We made Wolverine grieve so hard for him. And the day that I got that phone call was really depressing. The fact that they said, look, please, can you bring him back? Because reading comic books, watching soap operas, you know, you don't want to have these phony deaths. You don't want to, if you, if you get the emotion of someone dying, you want it to be real. And I feel like you're cheating the audience if you pull too many tricks and have faux deaths and faux deaths. And I mean, people do it casually now all the time. You know, even in small ways within movies where they're, oh, he's dead and they're all grieving. And, oh, no, he's not. So I that felt terrible. Now, once we absorbed that terrible day of saying, after all this work, we now have to have the fact that we now have to have the fact that he didn't die. Two things. One, it had been a year. So everybody had seen the first episodes three or four times mm-hmm. and it played that way as it was supposed to. And so we thought. That worked fine. But also, when we were forced as professionals to say, okay, we're stuck with this, what can we do with it? We actually, it was a little bit of a goldmine of good stuff to do with more, you know, more stuff to do with more. Give him a new edge, give him the PTSD, give him some anger, give him something more to play with. And so it let us do more with his character than obviously we would have after just killing him after an episode and a half. But it made, to my mind, it ended up making for some good writing in his on this story. So that that was a bit of a gift. But I won't sugarcoat it. It was we were we were disappointed when we heard we had to bring him back. I can definitely understand that because it felt a little bit like a cop out to me as a kid. But like you say, there are some things that were really great because of that. Like when Wolverine goes after Morph to try yeah. to bring him back, and that confrontation oh. they have. That was so well written in the like the different ways that morph morphs to you know upset Wolverine. You know he's Gene oh. for a while, he's Sabretooth for a while, and the dialogue that's oh. going along with that is it, it was so good. So yeah, I understand. Did you ever feel like the team should change its membership like uh, it did in the comics? You know, it was uh, an interesting kind of intersection of what was happening at Marvel in the comic book side of things and what was happening with X Men in the animated side of things. And there was never any, from a from the sort of over, over well, overall production side, there was never any big desire to, to change things. Because once you've got something, once you've got your characters designed, you know, people are just happier. It's cheaper. Just stick with the team you got. But also, also it's a TV thing where what brings people back for six or ten seasons is keeping your core together. Like, I don't know, Modern Family's been on for ten seasons. And... It's rare that they replace somebody unless they absolutely have to, because as opposed to doing a one-off story like a movie, you're bringing people back to be with this family that you've created. And it's just, it's a real difficult thing to change that family up unless you have to. It's it's because sometimes you get it wrong. I mean, it's like, you know, in Cheers, they changed the main woman and they changed the bartender and each time they did it cleverly enough so that they maintained the tone but it's it's a hard thing for a tv show to lose 
that continuity because it's like if you were 10 seasons of Friends. If the Friends were different every season, it's a very different experience than, oh, we're back with these six people that we know and are expecting. So it's a tough thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you may have seen the book. We had planned as an exit for like the last episode of the story to have four or five X-Men leave and four new ones come in as new X-Men, just as a, a tag, as a bomb, you know, maybe in the future there'll be different people as X-Men. But we hadn't planned to, you know, we hadn't planned stories with new with new X-Men. Yeah, it always seemed to me like Archangel was being set up as a permanent member right. down the line. And, and I know that that was your plan as one of the things to end it with him there, but I was wondering if you ever wanted to actually have him join like during the series, but were told or decide, you know, for whatever reason that it had to be the same group. Now, actually, one of the struggles in, in writing the stories was eight or nine people are an awful lot of people to service in 22 minutes. And so that was such a, a challenge in and of itself. It probably didn't occur to us to think, oh, we could squeeze two or three more in or, or lose a couple of these guys and, and trade them out for somebody. It was maintaining that group was, was tough. I can understand that. Were there ever any story ideas that you wanted to do on X-Men, but were told that you couldn't? <laughs> I only laugh because, the, again, at the end of season one, we thought that was it. That was going to be the end. You know, the whole 13 rolled up right there, and that was it. Yeah, and so, so you'll, you'll know. We got the call to start season two, and Mark and I were laying out the next, you know, 14 through 26. And it starts off with Gene and Scott getting married. And as we laid it out originally, they got, they were going to get married, and we were very soon going to see Gene seven months pregnant. And then during the second season, have a double mutant child. And so we ran this by, as part of the, the next 13 stories, we ran this by everybody and suddenly all these people, everybody that had been with us on every other episode said, oh, hold it. You know, this massive baby bump running around fighting supervillains is not going to fly. And I don't know if we want to have a little, you know, a baby, even if it's a double mutant baby in this. But that would have been so cool. Yeah. I actually agree with you on this one because Jean didn't have to be out right. in combat with them while she was pregnant. She could have been back at the mansion, so it's not that right. big of a deal. But so that that was the one thing that we were pulled back from, and that would that was fun. So that's why that's why Sinister ended up being the one that that foe married them because we had planned on them actually getting married, and then when we were told that no, we don't want them to get married and have a kid. Well, we said, okay, well, let's make it a, a, a sinister plot. And we actually went back and added in a little glimmering face of sinister at the end of episode 13, at the end of the first season, to portend this, this problem. I mean, we went back you know, way late, like after, after the show had been animated, mm -hmm. when we decided they weren't going to end up staying married. Yeah, that's why that final scene in that last episode of the first season seems like it's different than yeah, everything exactly. else. It's because it was added yeah, after the fact. So, uh, who is your favorite character on the X-Men? Oh, you know, as, as one of the writers for the show, I gotta say, and, and as a hopeless romantic, just the character of Beast, uh, Hank McCoy, is so, is so wonderful. You know, he is, he's the smartest guy in the room, and each of us writers likes to think we are the smartest person in the room. And being able to quote things, Eric, that was something you came up with in the pilot, yeah. was that he would, his character, I don't mean shtick, but one of his character traits would be that he would pull up a, a quote that would be appropriate for whatever it was they were facing. And that became among the writers. We enjoyed trying to 
outdo each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think now that looking back, we could have done more with him because he was, we kept him as this fairly gentle soul. And when we gave him some, some anger and some, and some emotion in beauty and the beast, I mean, that was a great episode and we should have done more of that. I think, I think we had Wolverine, you know, chewing the scenery so much and other people that were overtly dramatic. We tended to just let beast be this, even keel and that was really good for balance of the show but it didn't let the character have the extremes that some of the others did but yeah we loved it we all the writers love writing for my uh, favorite character was xavier not because of anything he particularly did or was but because i was supervising it ended up like 20 different people wrote for x-men over the 76 and a lot of them just one or two episodes but feeling like I was the father that had to keep <laughs> all this mishmash of, of very, very different people who are all trying to achieve the same goal of getting these stories right and getting them connected and getting them to feel similar but different. And so, yeah, I felt kind of like the daddy. And that was, I, I, I connected with Xavier. That's awesome. What was your favorite episode, Eric? And it fits. It was what, what one, man, one man's worth. It was the one where mm. the question is asked by the story, what would the world have been like without the X-Men if somebody killed Xavier when he was in college? Mm-hmm. And that seemed like a, such a simple, pure story that allowed itself to make the audience appreciate the X-Men the most. And it, it also is a, it's a, it's a touching theme that was seen in other, you know, in movies and in television in a, famous star trek episode city on the edge of forever where you know if this, this one woman is killed is not killed the whole of, of history has changed or in it's a wonderful life where if jimmy stewart wonders well if i die no one will care it won't make any difference and he gets to see what would happen if he did die and so that simple question seemed to play in perfectly for the x-men it was one of those you know once every couple of year when you try to come up with a good story, it's, oh, this is right. It felt before we even started it. I'm a sucker for time travel anyway, so yeah. you guys did time travel stories every once in a while, I always love those. Uh, Julia, what about you? Uh, what was your uh, favorite episode? I had a hand in coming up with what became uh, the episode Beauty and the Beast, where, and for me, the through line in that, that Beast falls in love with a woman who, who was blind, but then the point is that she regains her sight and is still in love and she's in love with him. And it's like, Oh, again, hopeless romantic over here. That kind of, but the, but the fact that there are elements of the world around them that would not let them be together. I thought a heartbreaking way to tell the story of what's going on in their world. What about the series? Are you most proud of uh, looking back on it? You know, it's funny being a, being a writer and being happy being a writer. We don't, necessarily get out there and, and we're not necessarily around a lot of people who've seen something because there's a lag time in the work that we do. We're on to the next project. We're you know down the road a ways. But I got to tell you, lately, because because of the book and because that's given us a, a, an entree to attend conventions and things, we've, we've been meeting a lot of folks who've come up to us to share their stories about not so much me telling you right now what X-Men means to me, but, but what X-Men meant to them. And to find out how it, it reached people when some of them were in pretty dark places and encouraged them to go on is something I am astonished and humbled by. Yeah, it's, 
it's it's weird. It's obviously we're proud of doing some of our best writing work, but you know we try to do that on all the shows we've worked on. I mean, we've each worked on at least forty different projects out here, and this is just one of them. It's just, uh, this is one that you know the magic all came together on. But this the idea that somehow this became the show for tens of millions of people all over the planet is just it's just scary cool Mm -hmm. i mean it's just it's it's something that when you're a creative person you don't know if 10 people are going to watch it or or 100 million and you don't know what they're going to think about it if you're going to get if what you're trying to get through is getting through and it's exactly i think what we were trying to get through and it got through and touched all these people, and that's just that's just indescribable. It's like mm-hmm. I guess being being a you know a rock musician in front of a, a stadium, and and sensing that there's a hundred thousand people out there that are loving what you're doing, and are being touched by it. And how do you quantify that? It's just that's really been kind of awe-inspiring the last year or two when we've been meeting people everywhere, all, you know. All over from from halfway around the world in Singapore, every mm. we'd go by and, and TSA agents and waiters and waitresses would say X Men. Oh, hey, I was wearing, <laughs> I was wearing an X Men shirt that I wasn't, and and someone just oh X Men, good show, I liked it. I said, wait, you you know the X Men? Oh yeah, and crazy, crazy. <laughs> like you said, other side of the planet. Yeah, of all the things that I've done on my podcast so far, which it hasn't been around a huge amount of time, but. X-Men is the thing that when I tell people I'm interviewing people from X-Men, people sit up and take notice. <laughs> that they that they get really excited about that. That it's so yeah, I I, I yeah, I can understand. <laughs> Cause I feel good just interviewing you guys. So <laughs> Well, and a thing that I say, and Eric's heard this a few times by now, is that X-Men existed as a as a as a comic book series for 30 years and before X-Men the animated series came along. And there is now a multi-billion dollar film franchise in, out there in the ether that, that exists. But I am convinced that X-Men the Animated Series is the bridge between X-Men that exists in the comic books and then the way into that billion dollar franchise. And that without X-Men the Animated Series, I do not believe there would have been a film franchise because there wouldn't have been the audience for it. The, X-Men the Animated Series created an audience that then was there to support the films. That's my thinking. I would agree with you because yeah, I don't think X-Men was a household name until the animated series came yeah. out. And all, all the people I knew at school, well, you know, I mean, some didn't watch it, but a lot watched it. And those that didn't watch it knew of it from everyone else talking about it. So <laughs> it, it became a household name because of that cartoon, because of the cartoon. Yeah. So, uh, then there's life after X-Men. So what are things that you've worked on since X-Men that you feel really proud of? Okay. Besides, besides X for squad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Well, uh, we did a show. Well, uh, and the book, but we, uh, we did a show for a, for a small young Singapore company called dream defenders. Uh, the, the company's not the show is called dream defenders. It was the first show they ever did. And we helped them along with it. This is back about seven, eight years ago. It's on, it's pl- playing on uh, Amazon prime right now. Mm-hmm. It was, it was an early 3d animated show. It's a younger show, but you know, we thought, you know, we put some good work into that. 
and hopefully now there'll be, uh, it looks like there'll be a, a feature film coming out of that uh, with a co-production with China, and we're excited about that as well. And shortly after X-Men, we both got a chance to do a live action series uh, that was from the, from the Renaissance people who did Hercules and Xena. And this was uh, 50 episodes of a show called Young Hercules, The Journey Begins, and stars Ryan Gosling as Young Hercules in one of his very first roles. And boy, he was good then. He, he has remained good, but he was good back then as a very, very young kid. But had tremendous fun doing that. Was that was very gratifying, and that was uh, that one moved pretty quickly. Live action moves very differently than, than animation. Yeah, yeah, fifty episodes in, in about six months. That was we were really cooking. And Mark and Michael had a hand in that. A lot of the X Men writers had a hand in that. You know, and more recently, mm. we we uh, got to do an episode for uh, Transformers: Robots in Disguise. That's that's now um, I believe that's on Netflix. And also a, a new show on Netflix called RoboZuna. We got to write several episodes of that for um, a friend of ours named Kevin Hopps and Rich Fogel, who, who um, were story editors on that. So yeah. we, the fact that we're able to sit here and say we're, um, we're working writers is profoundly gratifying. Yeah, I mean, we started, started in, 80, in 84, 85, and still at it. So it's been a fun gig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I looked you uh, both up in IMDb, and there's a lot of work there <laughs> between the two of you. There is one thing uh, before we talk about the book, just real quick, I wanted to ask you about, Eric, because I did not realize. I knew that you were involved with X-Men Exo Squad. You were also involved with what I consider the, the third the uh, great uh, series of the 90s with um, Gargoyles. Uh, you were uh, with the uh, Goliath Chronicle season. Right. Yeah, that was what that was, and I can't take credit for being an inspiration for that at all. Greg Weisman had done the 65 episodes that was his the, baby, yeah. of, the, of the original. It was all basically his baby. And then they'd, they'd finished and Disney had just gotten, had just purchased ABC and had wanted to fill it with some stuff. And so Michael Eisner says, well, let's put on some gar some more gargoyles. People know that show. And he said, well, okay, we'll just extend it. Said, no, 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 no. It needs to be something kind of new and different. And so a dear friend of ours, Jay Facuto there at Disney, called me into who we did Robocop with later. He uh, called me and said, well, could you do a season of this? I said, sure. And it, it needs to be different. It, and I'll be in Manhattan now. We enjoyed doing it. Uh, Julia wrote a couple of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it was different enough from the original Gargoyles that I'm not sure that the people that love Gargoyles found the shift all that satisfying. We thought that the writing was solid. We thought it was a well-produced show, but you know, it was just different enough from what the first 65 had been that I think, you know, I, my, my sense was from what little feedback we got was that it wasn't what the true believers were looking for. Well, to be fair, it was definitely different. It was more standalone and it was, it, to me, the only part that made that hurt it was that you had to reintroduce all of the characters all over again. And so as somebody who had watched the original, you know, the, the first 65, it was kind of like, okay, I know these characters, I don't know, but I understood you were on network television now, and you had an audience that didn't, you know, it may not have seen the original Gargoyles, and so you have to reintroduce all the characters for them. But once you got past those first six, and you were able to start doing episodes that, you know, you, you weren't just reintroducing somebody, I felt like it was still a very good show. And of course, you had that amazing vocal talent. Oh my god! I just boggle at gargoyles and the vocal talent they were able to assemble on that show because it, it's all people I knew from other things and they were all amazing. Yeah, including Star Trek. Yep. 
every Star Trek at the time was represented on Gargoyles uh, in one character or another. So yeah, it was... yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so. the show that taught me um, to start spotting voice actors and looking, you know, oh. for actors. So it was after X Men. It was Gargoyles, and so that's why I never recognized okay. that the core was Apocalypse. <laughs> but I I did want to talk about the book here because of course that's been the big thing that uh, and that's how I was able to connect with you was because of um, the uh, X-Men TAS blog because I think it was Michael uh, Edens posted a link to it on his Facebook page and I had connected with him through another page I was on and so that put me uh, in touch with you guys ultimately so so what made you decide to write a book about the making of X-Men? Julia nudging. (laughs) It was one of these weird things where because the rights were split between Fox and Marvel Disney, nobody was interested in the X-Men for about about 10 years in terms of, you know, writing a book about about the series, about, you know, doing a a new Blu-ray DVD or or anything. We we couldn't even get them to return our phone calls. They were killing the X-Men off in the comics. Yeah. They were, they saw Fox as a, as a, a rival. There was no sense that they wanted to support this. And so Julia realized, well, we both loved the book, the making of Star Trek. Yep. There you go. Call back Star Mm -hmm. Trek. Yeah. Back in the seven, mid seventies. And so we thought, well, I'd be, you know, there are only one, or, there are only a couple people that could write this book from the inside, and I'm one of them. So, why don't we give this a shot? And to our great satisfaction, everybody we've talked to, the, the cast, the crew, the artists, the writers, executives, everybody loved doing the interviews for the book. They almost to a person remember it as being, you know, their their favorite experience ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were one or two people that were a little eh, about it, but. Just about everybody. Oh my God, that was that was it. That was the peak. Everything was magic, and so that part was fun. It was a lot of work. We had um, this. The show from ninety two to ninety seven was at the beginning of the internet age, but also you know at a time when everything was paper. We happened to have space above our garage, put things in boxes, and they've been sitting there for twenty five years. It's like, well, we've got this drafts we've got the scripts we've got the notes we've got the storyboards you've got all the memos you know there's a source here but what do you do with it yeah so we broached this idea to a few publishers and two of them were very interested and we got with one uh jacobs brown in san diego that specializes in pop culture books in fact has i don't know eight or nine books on star trek they're just 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 luminous boys at the bottom of the sea I mean, they, they don't so they were a perfect fit for this. And so it took a couple of years. It's a little bit different muscle than writing for TV is really fast and it's ephemeral. It's like, look, here's 35 pages and it just needs to be clear, coherent, focused and organized well enough so that the artist knows exactly what to draw and the people know what to say. In writing a book that's something permanent, it, it's like it was, it was much more obsessive compulsive and detail oriented and I, I i had to work harder and focus harder on certain things you know if you interview 36 people they're going to tell some of the stories seven or eight times and you have to whittle down which ones you know are are doing it you know are better which ones you, know, you can lose and it was a little bit of a challenge in that we were doing it without marvel's participation 
Mm. So there's a gray area of law about fair use that you can use certain images and anything that's been promotional, you can use. I could put the an image of you know a Gone with the Wind movie poster on the top of a book that I was writing about Gone with the Wind. That would be okay because that's a promotional material. So there were there were there are these these list of things we could use. Other stuff I you know was able to use bits and pieces from storyboards, but again it's not. We didn't have access to you know, the Marvel archives, or it was so you know that was a struggle making sure that we told the whole story and made the fans happy and made it exciting and made it all inclusive, yet doing it without you know doing it basically on our own from our own boxes or from you know the memories of the people involved, not from not from anything that that Marvel had given to us, and that was it was both a challenge, but it was also freeing because. It wasn't like we were told what we couldn't what we couldn't put in the book. You know, we weren't micromanaged or, or <laughs> yeah. we were managed. It was, it was all down to us. So it was it was difficult, but it was really really rewarding. And we're finding that people enjoy finding out behind the scenes stuff about how how their you know their favorite series came to be and almost fell apart half a dozen times. Yep. Yeah, those stories about the first, you know, season and all the different things that happened in it is is really compelling reading because there's so many things, you know, I mean, Will's story, he's, he told it on the show about the uh, the Australian McDonald's toy tie-in that <laughs> they, needed to, uh, they needed to include in the show, and he was like, no, <laughs> I will fight this and I'll stake my career on it. <laughs> it came down to that several times for several people. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, uh, could you just give a brief overview of the kinds of things that are in it? So anyone listening to this, besides the fact that it's about the X-Men animated series, you know, let them know what they're what they're going to get. Well, it is called, I think appropriately enough, previously on X-Men, the making Mm -hmm. of an animated series. And Eric had to even fight for that because in the title of the book, because the good publishers were like, that's not going to put you at the top of the alphabet. It needs to be like the making of something. (laughs) No, for fans who are fans of the show, previously on X-Men means something. (laughs) And so that's the title. Over 450, 450 Mm -hmm. pages. You talk to the executives in charge you talk to the artists behind the scenes you talk to the voice talent you go through every episode you talk about all the different trials behind the camera to just get it up on its feet and then to keep it running so it's 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 basically it's a couple parts one is about the first half of it is just a history from the first day when we get the phone call till finishing the last episode and then there's other parts which are Detailed interviews with people like Len Wein, who's the, basically the father of the modern X-Men from the mid-70s, and who wrote for us, thank goodness, for four episodes, creator of Wolverine and Storm and Colossus and Swamp Thing and other characters. You get to see pictures of the of the cast, pictures of the crew, of the artists, pictures, you know, pictures of the writers. You get to see, that's one of the things in animation, it's a little frustrating. You know, you've got all this beautiful work, and yet nobody knows anybody involved because they're all in effect behind the camera. There's no image of anybody. So there's an awful lot of getting to know the people that made the show happen. And then you start getting the sense that it took hundreds of people to get this show to happen the way it did. And if a couple of them had been the wrong people or had pulling in the wrong direction, it could have floundered. Yep. And yet somehow it did. And that was one, possibly the biggest 
revelation to me after finishing it up, realizing, thank God this person was in this position or in this position, you know, as the censor or the person in charge of video editing or the person in charge of storyboards. Every person was right. And if it had been somebody else, it could have been disastrous. Yeah, and I want to say to anybody um, listening to this that we've just had a, a two-hour interview with Eric and Julia, and if you think that, oh, well, I've, I've heard it all already, <laughs> you have not. There is so much in that book that has not been talked about on the show today, and, you know, this is more to whet your appetite <laughs> for some of the stories that you might get. So uh, I'd highly recommend picking up the book. It's a treasure trove. I mean, Eric even does a... Um, a synopsis of each story with his own opinion of it on there. Uh, there's a list of all the beasts quotes. Yes. I love this chapter. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a whole lot more there. Um, and, and again, you get what I like about it is that a lot of making of things are not written by people who were involved. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, those are, are interesting because the person has to delve into a lot of documents and do a lot of research. This is more about the people involved in the show because it's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of perspectives. You, you get a lot of a sense of all the different people who were creating this from, you know, the artists to the voice actors to the writers and the executives and everything. And so that's what I really loved about the series because you, you get a good feel for how everyone felt connected that participated in the book, you know, and how they felt about the show and how they, they interfaced with each other. So I liked that. Well, that's very kind to hear. Thank you. You're welcome. Can I jump in here and say, hey, folks, if you're interested in following us, we have a blog, which is xmentas.com. TAS for the animated series. That's our blog. That's us on Twitter, X-Men TAS. We're trying to get up on Instagram. That's us on Instagram. And we have on the blog, if, if folks need to reach out to us, there's an email address there, X-Men TAS 92 at gmail.com. And if you want to order the book through jacobsbrownmediagroup.com, you will get a hardback copy and Eric will have signed it. He, they bring him over a stack and he signs them. And then those, those go out to, to the folks who order it through Jacobs Brown Media. If you want to buy it on Amazon, you will get a soft copy probably. Well, you can choose soft, or, soft copy or hard copy, but it, it won't be signed. Yeah. So, and uh, it, depending on where you are in the country, hopefully we'll be coming to a con near you one of these days and we'll have some copies there too. But please, jacobsbrownmediagroup.com is where you can order the book directly. Eric and Julia, thank you so much for joining the show today. It has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Thanks thank for having you. us, Dave. We appreciate it. And that's it for our interview today. I want to thank Eric and Julia again for being so generous with their time so that I could talk to them about X-Men the Animated Series. This series was so important for me and has been important for me throughout my whole life, even now as a father presenting it to my children. And it's a, such an important show in pop culture. So many people enjoyed it. It was so influential on other shows that came after it. And it was influential in promoting the X-Men beyond the comic book readers and creating the franchise that Fox and now Marvel, once again under Disney, has access to and has been promoting. So it's such a great thrill to talk to people who are involved with that series. And so once again, Eric and Julia, thank you so much for coming on the show. I also want to make sure and say again that previously on the X-Men, their book is fantastic. 
give it a read. There are so many good stories in there. It's real page Turner and you're going to find out a lot of things that you didn't know about the show. And it's really, really cool. But now comes the part where I want to know, what did you think of the episode? Did you enjoy the interview? Do you want to see me do more interviews? Do you want to see me do more panel topic style episodes? And you can do that by contacting me in a variety of different ways. One way is by emailing us at everything at 42cast.com. You can drop us a line on Facebook at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at at 42cast. Or you can leave us reviews on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Also, if you feel like you want to support the show or support other shows on the ESO network, you can go to the ESO Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash ESO network. And what that does is that puts a little money towards our operating expenses. And so it helps us to stay on the air. So if that's something that you'd be interested in doing, then please check that out. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us back next week when Toby Stevens will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2019. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is sharper swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 cast is a proud member of the ESO network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.